he has taken an extreme stance. His insistence that condoms should not be used in any circumstances has condemned untold numbers of Catholics at risk for HIV infection to certain death. He has excluded women from any future hope of priestly ministry, not only within his own pontificate, but by attempting to legislate for his papal successors for all time. He has shut his ears to pleas for married clergy and rejected requests for laicization by priests who have married and started families, refusing them the sacraments. While making a show of encouraging interfaith dialogue and urging ecumenism, he has characterized other religions, that is, non-Christian religions, as defective, claiming that many Christian denominations, including the Anglican Episcopalian denominations, were not proper churches, their priests and bishops not proper priests and bishops. Despite his deep longing to come to an accord with the Russian Orthodox Church, he has established Roman Catholic dioceses in Russia in defiance of the concerns of the entire Orthodox Church. His debility in his latter days has exposed the long-term consequences of his autocratic papal rule. He has become a living sermon of patience and fortitude, appealing to the sympathies of the entire world. But the billion-strong church has been run increasingly by his Polish secretary and a handful of aging reactionary cardinals. We have had a papacy in which a pope utters virtual heresy, bishops and faithful are told they may not discuss women priesthood, a curial cardinal teaches that condoms kill, prelates, guilty of having shielded pedophiles, are honored, and a U.S. president has exploited the papacy as an election campaign stop. To understand John Paul, as he himself has declared often enough, is an exercise in penetrating the inner man. They try to understand me from the outside, he once said, but I can only be understood from the inside. Unlike his predecessor, John XXIII, who spoke constantly from the heart, John Paul has revealed his personality in theatrical displays, that have enraptured and beguiled his huge audiences. Exploiting modern broadcast communications to their fullest extent, his omnipresence and monopoly of the limelight have reduced within his church all other authority, all other holiness, unless dead, all other comparisons, voices, images, talents, and virtues. The legislator, the single dispenser of blessings, beneficence, and wisdom, there has been no hidden corner of the church where he was not present, heard, read, and where he was not absolute. This has been a big papacy, difficult if not impossible to capture in the round. His story has been told already in many different ways. As he prepared to travel to Cuba in February 1998 to meet with Fidel Castro, the Times, London, judged him the most influential political figure in the world during the previous twenty years. And the paper was right, up to a point. His encouragement of the Polish people to reject Soviet communism had reverberations throughout Eastern Europe and beyond. A line of malevolent dictators, Marcos in the Philippines, Baby Doc in Haiti, Pinochet in Chile, Jaruzelski in Poland, Stresna in Paraguay, fell from power after he had kissed the soil of their countries. Tributes to John Paul's intellectual status have been no less ardent. He has been fated as the sole philosopher-pope in history. His biographer, George Weigel, argues that John Paul's teachings have raised him to unchallenged status in the history of modern thought. 
Mr. Weigel believes that John Paul II, among many outstanding achievements, returned the great humanistic project to its true trajectory, which aimed, he argued, straight into the Holy Trinity itself. John Paul, by this verdict, has set the world on its true course for this new millennium. As John Paul's papacy lengthened and the obituarists repeatedly updated their eulogies, a variety of adulatory perspectives on his life and times have emerged, enhancing the cult of his personality. John Paul the athlete, poet, playwright, pastor, theologian, prophet, politician, confessor, contemplative, preacher, ecumenist, counselor, sage, reconciler, moralist, living saint. A number of biographies and portraits were published between 1994 and 1999 in expectation of John Paul's imminent demise. They include accounts by Michael Walsh, the late Jonathan Quitney, the late Tad Schultz, Marco Politi and Carl Bernstein, and George Weigel. Any writer attempting a new portrait of John Paul owes a considerable debt to these authors, whether one agrees with their conclusions or not. They have brought a wealth of documentation and exclusive interview material to their portraits. But John Paul's refusal to die, according to a timetable set by others, Vaticanologists have been predicting his imminent death since at least 1994, has rendered them outdated. This new portrait of John Paul II is not a biography of comprehensive record. I do not attempt to compete with the thoroughness of earlier biographies, a comprehensiveness that tends, through sheer mass of detail, to weigh down its extraordinary subject like a diamond set in lead. I have attempted to be selective in order to emphasize connections that bring his character and contradictions to narrative life, from his childhood to the year of the new millennium. Then, picking up where the latest biography ends, I tell the story of his pontificate during the first years of this decade, a period that includes the Jubilee year, the papal visits to Jerusalem and former Soviet republics, the 9-11 attacks in America, the war on terror, the Iraq war, his relations with America, the continuing struggles within the Catholic Church over authority and regard for other religions, and the sexual abuse crisis in the priesthood that has rocked the Church to its foundations. The critical post-1999 era has seen the Holy Father in the final stages of Parkinson's disease, immobile, often incapable of speech, and suffering from blank episodes of concentration and memory. Urgent questions were raised in the late 1990s about the possibility of resignation. In the first year of the millennium, John Paul set aside such suggestions by publicly avowing the mystical nature of his personal pontificate. John Paul, in his young manhood and prime, defined the term mystical in a subtle and orthodox manner, as the spiritual meeting of two liberties, the acting human person with the person of Jesus Christ, encountered not as an object in the world, but as the all. In his early years as an academic and bishop, moreover, he was preoccupied with defining the nature of the human person as ex-centric rather than self-centered. We become more ourselves and more like Christ, who is the model of humanity, he said, by self-giving. By his early sixties, however, he was inclined to entertain a more vulgar and egocentric construal of the mystical element in his life, with drastic implications for human responsibility, the meaning of history, his own divinely ordained role as Pope, and his extraordinary degree of certitude. 
At the same time, his inclination toward popular mysticism involved a contradiction, a denial of those Christian humanist notions that he continued to preach into his late years. After the attempt on his life on May 13, 1981, he began to allude to the importance of the coming millennium. He was increasingly inclined to place his trust in celestial control of history in preference to human, earthbound responsibilities. Meanwhile, over the years, he increasingly undermined the prospects for collegiality, reducing the status of his bishops. They treat us like altar boys, said the late Cardinal Joseph Bernardin of Chicago, of John Paul and the Roman Curia. Once an outstanding champion of political and religious freedom, John Paul began to place limits on liberty, limits that he alone could define. Authentic freedom, he wrote in his key encyclical, or Letter to the World, Veritatis Splendor, Splendor of the Truth, is never freedom from the truth, but always freedom in truth. The Catholic faith had the fullness, the monopoly of the truth, he asserted in the Vatican address he endorsed, called Dominus Jesus, the Lord Jesus, 2000. At the same time, his pyramidal notion of the function of the papacy, the cult of his papal personality, seemed to encourage an epic self-centeredness, and the more central, holy, and absolute the Pope, the less significant his bishops, his clergy, and the laity. A token of the soaring cult of his personality? In his native Poland, most churches now have on prominent show an outsized statue of John Paul. As a Polish correspondent to the International Catholic Weekly, the tablet noted at Christmas 2003, To my knowledge, no other public figure has had so many statues erected in his lifetime except Joseph Stalin.